All right, Galatians 3. We're looking at the first nine verses this morning. Let's, uh, let's read through the text. As soon as I flip through myself. There I am. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Here we go. Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, so we're working through Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. We've been... uh, Uh, We're at a good clip here. We're now in chapter three. Chapter three is uh, a pretty significant shift in Paul's letter. Here's where Paul actually starts his formal argumentation for justification by faith. So in light of that shift here in chapter three, let's go ahead and do a quick review where we've gone. And then I also want to kind of give definition to some some categories that we've been discussing. You're going to see these definitions in your sermon handout um, that was in your bulletin. So quick review. In chapter one, Paul makes clear that adding works to faith in order to gain acceptance with God is is tantamount to gospel desertion. In other words, to supplement the gospel is to supplant the gospel. Then starting in chapter 1, verse 11, through the end of chapter 2, Paul does two things. He argues for his apostolic authority, and then he restates the true gospel. This had to be done because one of the tactics of the false teachers when they came in is to undermine his credibility. They undermined his apostolic authority. It kind of sounded like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) sorry. That Paul, you know, he gave you the wrong gospel because he never had authority to preach it. So often Paul's having to go back and argue again that he actually has authority (laughs) from Jesus to preach this gospel. And so that's what he does. He argues for his apostolic authority, and then he restates the gospel at the end of chapter two. So that brings us to chapter three. All right, let's, let's cover some, some categories that we've been discussing throughout this series. Justification. Justification is a legal term borrowed from the court system. So think of it like this. God is the judge of the universe, He's in the court of heaven. He's sitting on the bench with his gavel. And we are the sinful, guilty party that is on trial. And at the moment that a person trusts in Jesus, God makes a a judicial determination. And then here's a formal definition. This is the one I I, I just love from uh, theologian Wayne Grudem. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And so then, two, he then declares us to be righteous, not guilty in his sight. 
You see, there was nothing that the guilty did to convince the judge that they were innocent. Rather, by faith, their sin and guilt was credited to Jesus, and Jesus' innocentness, his guiltlessness, was credited to them by faith. You see, when God sees believers, he doesn't see anything that they perceived to have done, could have done, anything they have done, but God sees Jesus when he sees believers. He sees them clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Because of that, he declares them not guilty. All right, we've also mentioned legalism. Legalism is any attempt to gain acceptance or forgiveness from God through our own efforts or merits. All right, so chapter 3 Paul's making a shift now to start formally arguing for justification by faith alone. And the point that he's going to make in these first nine verses is this. We should believe that justification is by faith alone because it is confirmed by our experience and Abraham's example. So here's the little outline. Again, this stuff is in your sermon notes. Verses 1 through 5 is point 1, and point 2 is verses 6 through 9. All right. Let's reread verses one through five and get into point one. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the, the argument that Paul is making in these verses is this. We should believe justification is by faith alone because it is confirmed by our experience. Sometimes, sometimes being blunt is helpful. One, one translation uh, uh, says verse one like this. You stupid Galatians who hoodwinked you. I like that one. That's probably my favorite. But Paul had clearly preached and taught that Jesus' death was both necessary and fully sufficient on its own to make a way for the guilty to be declared not guilty by the holy judge. And for Paul, what was then really bewildering is that in his mind, the Galatians were believers. Later on in verse 15 of this same chapter, he calls them, he calls them brothers. This is this, this spiritual family language. He calls them brothers. You, you see, the Galatians had for some period of time, this is crazy, but, but let's hear this because we're going we're gonna to foolishly and sadly be able to relate to this later. Listen. The Galatians had experienced for some period of time, before the false teachers had ever come in with their false gospel, the Galatians had experienced the fruit of justification by faith alone, through the Spirit's presence and activity. And Paul witnessed it, and he was able to confirm it. But now... Now, as if a spell had been cast over them, the Galatians no longer saw the cross as sufficient to gain them full acceptance before God. 
Despite past experience, they, they now deemed it necessary to supplement their faith with works. But saw, Paul saw their experience as valid and sought to use it against them to kind of snap them out of their foolishness, as it were. Paul's approach to do this is he's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions that were supposed to have sort of painfully obvious answers. Now, before we get into those questions, through reading that text, you might be asking, why is Paul talking about the Spirit when justification is the issue? Good question. Well, Paul is arguing for justification, and he's doing it through and based on their experience of the Spirit's fruit in their lives. This is a bit of reverse engineering. You see, one of the, the first gifts that the justified received is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, you will experience his fruit in your life. Right, so if we work from the end, if we work from the fruit back to the root as it were, then therefore if you see genuine expressions of the Spirit's activity in your life, right, we can look at chapter five, the fruit of the Spirit, for example. If you see that in your life, then conclude that the Spirit lives within you. And if the Spirit lives within you, then we can conclude that you were justified. That's what Paul's doing here. You, 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 you see? And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that we'll know people by their fruit. In other words, Paul is saying that the experience of the Spirit and his work in the Galatians' lives gives evidence that they've been justified. Listen, the Bible tells us that if we have been objectively justified, then we will subjectively experience the fruit of it in our lives. All right, first question, verse two. First question, verse two. Here we go. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, the answer was to be by hearing with faith. Paul's effectively saying with this question, hey, you know, back then when you received the Spirit, you didn't do so by works of the law because that wasn't the message that I preached to you. You believed, you heard and believed the only message that I gave to you, and that was by faith alone and not by works. Now, now Paul isn't and wasn't the only person that has argued that the Spirit gives evidence of justification New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner astutely points out, Peter defended the inclusion of Gentiles into the church of Jesus apart from circumcision by appealing to the gift of the Spirit as well in Acts 15.8. And there, Paul, Peter's argument is since the Gentiles had the Spirit, circumcision was not required. And now here in our passage, since the Galatians have the Spirit, they are clearly Christians and belong to the people of God Hence, circumcision and obeying the law are not required to belong to the people of God. You see, looking back on their experience, it should have been painfully obvious that the Galatians received the Spirit by faith because that was the only message that they knew. Question 2, verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Look, Paul doesn't even buy in to the false teacher's position that these, that these believers in Galatia aren't justified. He doesn't buy it. He believes that they're justified. He's seen evidence. And so Paul's moving on. 
Paul is effectively saying, listen, I know that you were justified by faith alone. I can see the evidence of it. So then tell me this, Galatians, since that's true, but you seem to be wanting to add works, are, are you now trying to, by the flesh and your own merits, be sanctified, pursue, pursue progress in the Christian life by faith or by efforts, by your own works? Paul's effectively saying that justification is by faith and sanctification is by faith. Sanctification, that can seem like one of those churchy words, but it is a Bible word. We see sanctify, we see sanctification in our Bibles. Simply put, sanctification is the progressive lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus in your daily life. Listen, this is important. Sanctification always comes after justification and never before. Sanctification is something that comes after justification and never before. Why? Well, if sanctification came before, if, you, if the process of you becoming more like Christ came before your declaration of being righteous, then you are effectively earning your right standing. At what point in your sanctification would it ever be sufficient enough that you would then be declared righteous? It would never be. Sanctification always comes after justification. You've got to remember in justification, one is declared to be something righteous that they are not actually in their daily life. We still sin. This is a massive distinction. Justification is a declaration of being righteous, not you being righteous. You are not made righteous in justification. You are declared righteous righteous. You are declared to be something righteous that you are actually not in your everyday life. We still sin. That's where sanctification comes in. Sanctification is the process where the justified progressively become what they've already been declared to be in the court of heaven, righteous. This is huge. This is huge and does away with us of any attempt to earn our right standing before God. When you believed, at the moment of your belief, you were declared righteous because you were gifted Christ's righteousness. But you were not actually righteous in that moment. You still sin. You still sin now. Sanctification. Sanctification is that progressive process where you're starting to become more and more of what you were already declared to be. We read last week in chapter two, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And even in their brief time of being believers and having the spirit, the Galatians should have been able to look back and see the fruit of the Spirit that was being produced in their life, not by works, but by the Spirit's power. Listen, the gospel of faith in Christ alone is not only how we are justified and how we receive the Spirit, but it's how we make all progress in the Christian life. You've probably heard me quote this before from Tim Keller. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but is the A to Z of Christianity. 
The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. Listen, the gospel is not something that's relegated to unbelievers, and then once you believe, you move on to something different and and maybe better. The, The gospel is for believers, and the gospel is for believers. It is for unbelievers, it is for believers. The whole of the Christian life is by faith in the gospel. Paul's third question, verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The Galatians have experienced suffering, probably persecution, but by faith, the Spirit has seen them through these things. Paul's question is a warning to the Galatians that if they do not persevere in the gospel of faith alone, then their suffering in it their suffering for belief in it would be for nothing because they've now abandoned it. In other words, faith is futile if you do not persevere in the end to the end in it. Faith is futile if you do not persevere to the end in it. But again, perseverance is not a result of works, but a result of God's work by faith. Fourth question, verse five. Does he who supplies the spirit to and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So here Paul makes his final appeal to their experience. So evidently God was, was working miracles amongst them. They were experiencing this and Paul was a witness to it. And so Paul asked them, was the was the the conduit, if you will, was the conduit that God used to supply the Spirit and to work the miracles that you've experienced, was that that conduit that he used your obedience to the works of the law or your faith in the message you heard? Of course, the answer was by hearing with faith. The Spirit had been manifested among them by works of power, and it was to be painfully obvious that it was by faith and not by anything that they had done. This false paradigm of adding works to faith was something that came after their already experience of living in the good of faith alone. Okay. Let's, let's, make, this, let's make this personal. Because I think the temptation uh, for us is uh, to want to relate more with Paul and less with the Galatians. And maybe in part because then we get to use the cool statement of you foolish Galatians. Right? But I mean, the reality is we're more often than not the foolish Galatians than we are Paul. We too can effectively reject our justification by faith when we attempt to supplement our faith with our efforts. Let me give you some some scenarios. I'm hoping that through four scenarios, we're all going to be sucked into this and say, yep, that's me, and that's why I needed to hear this. Four scenarios. The first two by the late Jerry Bridges. Consider two radically different days. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. Oh, to top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's truly searching 
As you talk with that person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. Second day, just the opposite. You don't arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it is way too late to have a quiet time. You, you hurriedly gulp down some breakfast and rush off to the day's activities. You, you feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time, and things just generally go wrong all day. You become more irritable as the day wears on, and you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. And he asks, would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different, with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather terribly bad spiritual day? He goes on. If you answered yes to those questions, you have lots of company among believers. And he asks, why then do we think this way? It is because we do believe that God's acceptance and blessing on our lives is somehow conditioned upon our spiritual performance. Oh, we know God's blessing comes to us through Christ, but we also have this vague but very real notion that they are also conditioned on our behavior. Two more examples. It's not an uncommon experience that after we sin, we can choose to not immediately go to God in repentance, seeking forgiveness. Why? Worldly guilt sets in. Not, not, not godly conviction. Worldly guilt sets in and convinces us that what we've done is just, just too stupid and shameful to immediately go to God. Instead, we determine often unconsciously, that we should maybe stay away from God for some undetermined time. Typically, that time comes, if it comes at all, when our worldly guilt goes away. Or maybe, maybe after you've blown it big time, instead of going to God with repentance and asking forgiveness, you, you instead determine that in order for God to allow you back into his good graces, that you probably need to first demonstrate a pattern of good behavior. Well, of course, that pattern of good behavior never lasts very long because it comes out of a heart of duty and obligation, not a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. It's in those moments, isn't it, that we are trying to make ourselves right before God based on our power and performance. These things are so subtle. We are literally our own worst enemy, sort of smuggling in our, our efforts into our faith. 
But when we respond to our sin in these ways, we're not living in the good of justification by faith alone. Rather, in those moments, we believe. In those moments, we believe that our guilt and our offense against God will be diminished not by faith in Jesus alone, but by our penance of staying away or by building a track record of good moral behavior. Friends, the gospel is not a moralistic do. The gospel is a gracious and merciful done. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if you've sinned and you're consumed by guilt, not conviction, but a guilt and shame that is keeping you away from drawing near to your heavenly Father, and you're not living in the good of justification by faith alone. Listen, by faith in Jesus, there is no more guilt. There is no more shame. All of God's righteous anger for your sin has been placed on Jesus. And what is left now is peace. There is no hostility between you and God now. There is peace. That declaration of not guilty, it already happened. And it was because by faith you were gifted Christ's righteousness. Not because of anything you did or could do or didn't do. Now, listen, when, when, when we've sinned, we should go to God with repentance and seeking forgiveness. Because there has been a, a, a break, if you will, in our sort of experiential communion with him. Not in our legal standing with him. There's been a, there's been a break in the relationship in, in sort of an experiential sense. So we go. We go to God. We go to God seeking forgiveness still. Let me give you an example in my own life. I'm legally married to Lauren. Uh, she was here at the first service. I got to like point to her, so I don't get to do that thing this, this time. But I, I am, I'm legally married to my wife, Lauren, right? Of course, recognize that I am her husband. Now, when I, not, not, not if, when I uh, do wrong and, and I make an offense against her, and if I don't go seeking forgiveness, my legal standing with her is unaffected. Now, that's a really good thing because I'm a knucklehead. Now, I am not saying, though, I am not saying, though, that just because my legal standing with her is unaffected that I should not go. No, I'm just saying, though, that that is a legal reality that happened in the past. And I do want to go. Actually, even based on that legal reality, I do want to go and seek forgiveness. I do want to confess that I've messed up. I do want to humble myself and apologize and, and seek forgiveness. Now, again, let's make this painfully obvious. I'm not going and giving her flowers and giving her gifts so that I can re-earn my legal right standing. That happened. But there is, a, there is sort of a, the communion with my wife. I, I've done wrong. I, I go and I, I seek forgiveness, knowing that she loves me and she's eager to forgive. Friends, it works the same way, but way better with God. There was, a, there was a time in the past where she decided and I decided to get married. There was a time in the past where I could do nothing to make myself right before God. 
nothing that I could do to earn my right standing with him. God did it in Christ. He made a way for the guilty to be declared not guilty. Even better, that legal standing will never be changed, ever, for all eternity. By faith, I'm declared not guilty. And that does propel me and motivate me to go, knowing that I'm already fully forgiven in Christ. But I want that experiential communion to be restored. And so I go and I humbly ask my Lord for forgiveness. But I'm able to in those moments, and let me encourage you, friends, in those moments where we're tempted to, to, to go in the way of legalism, to stop. Stop in those moments, cold in our tracks, and, and consider, and consider, yes, God, what I've done is stupid. It is sin against you. But I, I come before you now unashamed, without hesitation, because I know that you have already declared me right in Christ. I can see evidence of it in my life. I don't need to stay away. Right now, I get to come before you. Thank you, thank you. Praise Jesus. See, we go now. I want to encourage you that we should believe justification is by faith alone because it is confirmed by our experience and living in the fruit of it is a glorious freedom. Well, Paul doesn't stop there to confirm that God's method of justifying sinners has always been by faith alone. Paul points to Abraham's previous example. All right, let's reread verses six through nine. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here, here's, here's the point that Paul's making. We should believe justification is by faith alone, because it is confirmed by Abraham's example. Now, you've got to remember that the false teachers claimed that the Gentiles needed to, yes, trust Jesus, but they also needed to effectively live like a Jew by adding works of the law to their faith in Jesus, like circumcision. So in verse 6, Paul builds on his argument by saying that the Galatians' experience, that their experience of being justified was just like Abraham's previous example of being justified by faith alone and not by works, not by circumcision. In other words, even Abraham, the father of the Jews, was not justified by works of the law or circumcision. In verse 5, Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6. In the first six verses of Genesis 15, we read of God's promise to Abraham, uh, Abram at this point, if you recall, uh, the promise to give Abraham innumerable descendants despite his wife being barren. Starting in Genesis 15:5, we read, the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then the Lord said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Three things to note. We're supposed to, and the Galatians are supposed to see a lot of parallelism between their experience and Abraham's example. Here we go. First, 
just like in verse 1 in our passage in Galatians, where the promise of forgiveness through Christ crucified was put, was put before the Galatians' eyes, so too was the promise of descendants put before Abraham's eyes. Two, Abraham, like the Galatians, believed by faith that God would fulfill his promise. And that despite the impossibility from a human perspective. And then three, Abraham's faith was counted or credited to him as righteousness. It's an interesting word. Some translations use counted, some use credited. Same thing, counted, credited. To put it in financial terms, God accounted Abraham as righteous. Trusting God was like opening a bank account. Immediately, God transferred righteousness into Abraham's account. This does not mean that Abraham was actually righteous, only that he was declared righteous. Abraham was considered to have right standing before God because by faith, he was gifted a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. This was not his righteousness that he was declared righteous by. It was being gifted a righteousness that was not his own. Of course, as we move through the rest of the, the Bible, we see that this righteousness comes through Jesus. As an aside, the Old Testament saints the New Testament saints, like the saints of today, are saved by trusting in the promises of God. And as it moves clearer and clearer, that is seen in the finished work of Jesus. We are saved. We are all saved by trusting in God. Let's make this painfully obvious. In contrast to what the false teachers were telling the Galatians to do, Abraham himself was not justified because he had been circumcised, or because he had kept the law, because circumcision and the law did not come until after he was justified. They weren't even in the picture when he was justified by faith alone. Listen to how Paul described this in Romans 4, 9-11. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he's still uncircumcised. And then listen, Paul says, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. It's by faith. It is by faith that guilty persons can be declared righteous before the holy judge. And what's more, it is then by faith that we become children of Abraham, children of God. As a result of being justified by faith, Paul tells us in verse 7, know then that as those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Two things. Being a child of Abraham, which is to be a child of God, is not hereditary. You're not born into this. I mean, interestingly enough, if you look back at the Gospels or you consider when we were going through the Gospel of John, oftentimes the, the Pharisees would, would come to Jesus and part of their, their, their rejection of him is saying, we're already the children of Abraham because we were born into it. And 
Jesus would reject that. False, he would say, your father's the devil. Abraham is the father of God's people because he is a family of spiritual children like him who believe in God. Two, this is sweet. Those who are justified by faith are to know, are to know that as a result, they've also been adopted into God's family by faith. There's more, verse eight, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. This is an earlier promise than the one that we looked at earlier. This is now in Genesis 12, verse three. The phrases that Paul uses here, the, the justify the Gentiles by faith, and then that of Genesis, the nation shall be blessed. So justify the Gentiles by faith, the nation shall be blessed, are to be seen as synonymous here. And they're both being captured by this phrase that Paul says, the gospel was preached to Abraham before. The gospel being justification by faith alone. Justify the, the Gentiles by faith, the nation shall be blessed. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The blessing comes in the fullness when the Gentiles are justified by faith. Verse 9 brings the conclusion of Paul's argument using Abraham's example. Paul writes, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Receiving the blessing of justification is not done through works of the law, but through faith. We should believe justification is by faith alone because it was confirmed by Abraham's example. Listen, we, 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 we dare not come to the New Testament and say, oh, look, there's something new going on. People are getting justified by faith. The point of Abraham is to be an example that declares that this is the means by which God has always declared the guilty not guilty, and that is by faith. It's God's chosen means for declaring people, all people, the nations, righteous in his sight. Let's close. We should believe that justification is by faith alone because it is confirmed by our experience in Abraham's example. We have, if you are a believer in Christ and you have been justified, you have necessarily seen the fruit of it in your life. Having been gifted the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, you have, I trust, because this is what the Bible says, that you have experienced his fruit. You find yourself to be more at peace, to have more self-control, more joy, gentleness, and kindness. And it gives you personal confirmation of God's activity in your life. This is a wonderful way to encourage not only yourself, but other believers. It's one thing to go and encourage somebody and say, oh, you look well-dressed today. That hair looks sharp. So all goes away. It is another to say, I see God at work in your life. 
here's the evidences of what I'm seeing that God's activity is in your life. Because when we look at chapter 5 and we see the fruit of the Spirit, that is a fruit of the Spirit. Not a fruit of Stuart. Not a fruit of you. That is a fruit of the Spirit. And so if you see that in your life, amen, God is at work. The evidences of such should be confirming of God's activity and it should propel us forward in pursuing more Christ-likeness. Maybe you're here this morning and this is sort of all, all new. There is no better message to hear than to hear that God has made a way for the guilty to be declared not guilty. Let's, let's be blunt. If you're here this morning and have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and for the forgiveness of your sins, you stand guilty before the holy judge of the universe. But the judge has made a way. The judge has made a way for all of us who are guilty to stand not guilty before him. In Jesus, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection has made a way for the guilty to be declared not guilty. He takes your guilt and your shame, and you take his innocentness, his righteousness, and his guiltlessness. I would just encourage you to consider this good news of the gospel this morning. I would love to be able to talk with you more about it. If, if you would like to discuss further. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for a text like this, um, for in your infinite wisdom, uh, it's here. It has been retained for us to know you and know what you have done to make a way for the guilty to be declared not guilty by faith. And Father, I pray that you would help those of us whom you have already declared not guilty to live in the good of it. Father, would we resist legalism? Would we resist supplementing our, our faith with works? Father, would we cling to the objective truth that you love us, that you have forgiven us, that you have already declared us not guilty? And would that propel us forward? in pursuing Christ-likeness. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that they too would be declared not guilty before you, I pray that you would do your work in their life and bring them to that place of, of trusting solely in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.